0: Welcome to Skim This. It's been quite the week for COVID news, including a big announcement from the FDA that's gonna impact vaccine supply. To make sense of it all, we phoned a friend, a doctor friend. Then we'll bring you the latest on the most recent incident of police violence in Minnesota and break down the latest will they, won't they between the US and Iran and also Russia. Later, we've got updates on the US withdrawal from Afghanistan and why ending America's longest war is so hard to do. Oh, and we should mention, we also got a call from the Biden administration to talk about their infrastructure plan and how they're gonna pay for it. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. Sometimes you see a headline and it's all you have time to read before going back to work or to bed. But when the topic is really important, like life or death important with COVID, headlines really don't tell the full story. So wouldn't it be nice if you could just call up a doctor friend and be like, Hey, did you guys read that thing in The New Yorker last month about how gone? I read
1: somewhere. I think it was an NPR. Did
0: you read that thing in Mother Jones about?
1: Uh, I read somewhere. Did you
0: read that thing that guy wrote in the sand on the beach? Yeah. Luckily for us, we have that doctor friend. Meet Dr. Celine Gounder. She's an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at NYU's medical school. All right, let's give her a call. This is the news that everyone's talking about. Here's the headline from The New York Times. Johnson & Johnson vaccinations halt across country after rare clotting cases emerge. Now, can you help give us the context here? This feels like really big news. I think
2: it's normal for people to worry, but we're really bad at weighing risks. We tend to overemphasize the risk of an action, like getting vaccinated, and we underemphasize the risk of inaction, like not wearing a mask, uh, in a pandemic or not wearing your seatbelts in a car. And, and we worry also about the risks of something new like vaccines, but we play down the risks of something we might be used to like the risk of getting in a car accident on our way to work. I think putting this into context in terms of the numbers, women who are not taking birth control pills have a 1 to 5 in 10,000 per year risk of getting a blood clot. And that risk goes up by more than fourfold during pregnancy and immediately after pregnancy. And putting this another way, getting pregnant increases your risk of a blood clot by 400 times more than getting the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. If you get COVID, your risk of getting a blood clot is about one in five. So in terms of blood clot risk, pregnancy and COVID are way more risky than getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine.
0: If someone listening recently got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and they're concerned, what would you say to them?
2: If you develop a headache in the first day or two or three after you get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that's nothing to be concerned about. That's pretty much your run-of-the-mill mild vaccine side effects. But if you develop a headache or abdominal pain or leg pain or shortness of breath a week or two after you get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you really then should talk to your healthcare provider because that could be a sign that you have one of these very rare blood clot events.
0: Let's move to headline number two. This headline comes from WRAL in Raleigh, and it says that vaccine supply is starting to outpace demand as North Carolina makes all adults eligible. When I read that, I think, are we quickly approaching a situation in which vaccine hesitancy is going to be a front and center issue? And what happens then?
2: We are seeing this in a number of different states across the country now that vaccination appointment slots are just not filling up, uh, especially in in some of the more rural states and, and southern states we're seeing this trend. I think we have to be careful when we use the term vaccine hesitancy. There's a whole host of reasons people might not be getting vaccinated. Some of this has to do with access. How easy is it for them to take time off? Are there costs involved, for example, for transportation or for childcare or for taking time off work? So there's sort of that subset of people. And then you have people who just are nervous about getting vaccinated, absolutely just do not want to get vaccinated. And this is really gonna create some problems for us. I think very soon we're going to see demand for vaccines level off and and we're gonna have to do a lot of work to bring people in or to go out to people to get them vaccinated.
0: How does the news this week then about Johnson & Johnson impact vaccine hesitancy?
2: Well, I think it's really important that the FDA and the CDC prove themselves to be trustworthy and so that means that you you know you do have to address worries about vaccine safety and efficacy honestly a lot of what drives hesitancy about vaccines or low confidence in vaccines is worry about vaccine safety and efficacy and a lack of trust in the health system and in the government. And so it's really important that the FDA and CDC behave in a way that is trustworthy, which is to say that with any signal that there might be a risk, no matter how minuscule that risk is, they need to address that honestly, rigorously and, and transparently. And so in the short term, yes, that may get people worried, but I think in the bigger term, if you dismiss the risk, you could be fueling more mistrust.
0: I want to talk about a good headline that we saw from ABC News. Pubs and hairdressers set to reopen as UK eases virus lockdown. How can the UK be opening back up while the rest of Europe feels like it's permanently been on lockdown for a really long time?
2: Well, the UK is in a slightly different place in terms of timeline. They were hit by the B117 variant that emerged out of the UK first, whereas that variant has more recently spread to europe and then now to the united states and in the uk the spread of that variant is what prompted having to impose very strict lockdown measures over the winter holidays in the meantime they have been ramping up vaccination they are one of the world leaders really in rollout of vaccine And so we're all crossing our fingers that they have vaccinated enough of their people that we won't see a resurgence now that they're lifting their strict mitigation measures. But that still remains to be seen.
0: So that's it for the good news portion of this block. (laughs) Our next headline is from CNN, and it's the WHO calls for a reality check as COVID-19 cases surge. Where are we seeing these big surges and should Americans be concerned about this?
2: Yeah. One of the countries that really has me worried right now is India. Uh, And I actually have family on my father's side of the family back in India right now. They are seeing a tremendous surge in cases. They were pretty successful, actually, in the early days of the pandemic. They instituted very strict lockdown measures. But more recently, we have seen a huge increase in cases. And unfortunately, they haven't been able to vaccinate as quickly as they probably need To have been. So that has me really worried. Bigger picture, anytime you have spread of the virus anywhere in the world, the virus will continue to mutate. And I think if there's any lesson to be taken from this pandemic, it's that even if something is happening halfway around the world away from us, that can very much impact all of us. And so if you have mutant strains developing in India or somewhere else that do become fully resistant to the vaccines, that really could be a huge setback for everyone.
0: Our fifth headline comes from USA Today, and it's women report more side effects from the COVID-19 vaccine than men. Why is that?
2: I'm not entirely surprised. Women we know are more likely to have issues, for example, with autoimmune disease than men. Women's immune systems are simply different from men's immune systems. And so it's not surprising that they might have more side effects related to
0: vaccination. I had my second shot of the Moderna vaccine last week. And I have to admit, I was pretty surprised with just how out of commission I was for about a day. And I'm wondering what your advice would be. I think a lot of our listeners are going to start getting their vaccine soon if they haven't already and how you would advise them to just be prepared either mentally or even if it's just telling your dog walker, hey, I'm going to need you tomorrow. Like, what's your advice around that?
2: Yeah, I think especially with the second dose, I would give yourself the day off after that dose, or at least have you know a contingency plan for that. In the hospital, for example, and we were vaccinated very early because we were healthcare workers seeing patients on the front lines, we had staggering of our vaccination so that all the doctors and nurses in one unit were not being vaccinated at the same time. Just in case someone had to call out sick, you'd still have people available to show up for work the next day.
0: Dr. Gounder, thank you so much for coming on the show. After we got off the phone with Dr. Gounder, we heard from Pfizer that people will probably need a third dose of its vaccine within a year of being fully vaccinated. For more information on that kind of frustrating development, check out the Skim's morning newsletter, The Daily Skim. You can head on over to theskim.com to subscribe. All right, let's get to a couple of the headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up… Protests erupted overnight following a police shooting in a Minneapolis suburb. Here's the context. You've probably seen this one by now. Hundreds of demonstrators continue to hit the streets to confront police in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. They're calling for racial justice and protesting another incident of police violence. On Sunday, Officer Kim Potter shot and killed Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man, during a traffic stop. Wright's death was ruled a homicide. Potter, a 26-year veteran of the police force, allegedly meant to fire her taser at Wright rather than her gun, a potential mistake Wright's parents say they can't accept. Potter, along with her boss, the chief of police, handed in their badges this week, and now Potter is being charged with second-degree manslaughter. This would probably be a story anywhere in the country, but the crucial context here is that this shooting happened just 10 miles from where the trial of Derek Chauvin is underway. Chauvin is the former Minneapolis police officer on trial for the death of George Floyd. And now, some lawmakers and residents say this latest instance of police violence has created even more trauma in an already mourning community. And beyond Minnesota, it's directed more attention on a trial that's already gripped the nation. Okay, next headline. Iran says it's going to start enriching uranium to its highest ever level. Here's the context. On last week's show, we mentioned that the US and Iran are talking about making a new nuclear deal, after the one they agreed to in 2015 fell apart during the Trump administration. But now, after one of its key nuclear sites was attacked over the weekend, an attack Iran blames on Israel, Iran says it's not just going to sit back and take that. Instead, it's pushing the limits on its nuclear program to levels closer to what could be used to build a nuclear weapon. That decision could jeopardize nuclear talks, but it could also just be a negotiating tactic, a way for Iran to say to the US, if you want us to stop doing all of this nuclear stuff, you're gonna need to sweeten the deal. Okay, final headline.
3: The US has announced new sanctions against Russia for what the White House says is the Kremlin's election interference and cyber attacks.
0: Here's what's up. The US is kind of mad at Russia for a few reasons. Lately, Russia's been sending troops to its border with Ukraine, parts of which it invaded and has illegally occupied since 2014. That has the US and Ukraine worried about another possible invasion. Then there's Russia's alleged efforts to try to influence the 2020 elections, and its alleged cyber attack last year that breached U.S. government agencies and businesses. On those last two allegations, Russia says, it wasn't me, but the U.S. isn't buying it. And to get payback, it's kicking 10 Russian diplomats out of the country, imposing sanctions on dozens of Russian individuals and companies, and making it harder for Russia to borrow from American lenders. A little like the Iran story, this one combines diplomatic escalation with an offer to try to put the pieces of a relationship back together. On the same day the U.S. announced these sanctions, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said, we're down to seek opportunities for cooperation with Russia. And according to the White House, President Biden has proposed a summit with Vladimir Putin. TBD on Putin's RSVP. September 11th, 2021 is about to have some added significance. It's the two-decade anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and now the target date for the end of the longest war in American history.
3: We went to Afghanistan because of a horrific attack that happened 20 years ago. That cannot explain why we should remain there in 2021.
0: Last week, President Biden announced that by September 11th, the 2,500 or so U.S. troops still in Afghanistan will be gone. Some troops will reportedly stick around to guard the U.S. Embassy. Otherwise, the Afghan government will take over the job of holding back groups like the Taliban. For years, the argument for the U.S. to stay was that the Afghan government needed more time and more training from U.S. troops to stand on its own. But this week, Biden said enough's enough he pointed out that Osama bin Laden was killed a decade ago and that U.S. troops can't wait forever to fix every problem in Afghanistan.
3: American troops shouldn't be used as a bargaining chip between warring parties in other countries. You know, that's nothing more than a recipe for keeping American troops in Afghanistan indefinitely.
0: We should note, President Trump also set a date for a U.S. withdrawal, May 1st. That date was part of a deal with the Taliban, so Biden is actually pushing that deadline back and possibly breaking the agreement in the process. Biden says a slightly slower withdrawal will be a more orderly withdrawal, though it's also more time for things to go wrong. This week, the Taliban warned of unnamed problems if the U.S. overstayed the May 1st withdrawal date, and some experts wonder if Taliban attacks on U.S. troops could cause the U.S. to stick around to fight back, That's one risk. And even though Biden sounds pretty convinced about withdrawing, get ready for a lot of media coverage warning that leaving Afghanistan, even after 20 years, is surrender or puts Afghan civilians in danger. Basically, even if staying in Afghanistan for a third decade and after the loss of more than 2,300 US troops feels like the wrong move, finding a right time to leave might be even harder. A few weeks ago, we talked about the increase of migrants trying to reach the U.S. and kind of creating a crisis at the southern border. Well, despite Biden's direct address to migrants last month...
3: Don't leave your town or city or
1: community.
0: People are still traveling north. A bunch of factors are behind this, including widespread hunger in Guatemala, people leaving Honduras and Nicaragua after some devastating hurricanes last fall, and the ongoing danger of organized crime. Given all these factors, and their hope for a better economic future for their families, maybe it's not super surprising that being told don't come isn't working. But the US isn't giving up, and this week it struck a deal with Mexico, Honduras, and Guatemala to increase the number of troops and police at their borders. Here's what's going down in 60 seconds. According to this deal, Mexico will reportedly deploy 10,000 troops on its southern border, which the White House says will also double the number of migrants Mexico stops. The White House also says Guatemala will set up a dozen military checkpoints along migration routes and send over 1,000 troops to the border with Honduras. Speaking of Honduras, it's reportedly deploying 7,000 police and troops to break up a large group of migrants. So what's in it for these countries? Mexico says this is about enforcing our own immigration policies and reducing organized crime, But some context clues suggest all these countries could be expecting something in return. In March, VP Harris called Guatemala's president to say, thanks for securing your border. And also, hey, let's keep chatting about how to create jobs and make life in Guatemala better. Mexico's reward for stopping immigration might be even clearer. According to one report, just an hour after Mexico closed its borders last month, it announced, look at that, the U.S. is sending us more than 2 million doses of COVID vaccines. So if it sounds like there's some back and forth here, you might be right. How'd we do? Want us to skim a topic from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. Last week, we talked about a major bill proposed by the Biden administration called the American Jobs Plan. It's also been called an infrastructure bill. It's big, $2 trillion big. And while it includes obvious infrastructure-y type things like makeovers for roads and bridges, it also pays for replacing pipes, building public schools, and upgrading the electric grid. But some other things in this bill aren't what you think of when you think of infrastructure. Like $400 billion for expanding healthcare access for seniors, or $100 billion for job training programs. After reading about that and starting to get confused, we called up an expert to ask, what exactly is infrastructure? The definition I tend to use is the stuff that might not get built if the government weren't part of paying for it. That's Noreen McDonald. She's the chair of the Department of City and Regional Planning at UNC Chapel Hill. That's not a perfect definition. You know, we have roads that people
1: charge tolls for and existed before the federal government started paying for them. Obviously, we have a lot of private companies doing broadband, but the roads didn't get to every place before the government started paying for them. And similarly with broadband, you don't have to live too far out of an urbanized area to be told, nope, sorry, we don't um, have service there. So that's the loose way that I think about it
0: expanding the definition of infrastructure from physical infrastructure to everything that wouldn't get done if the government didn't pay for it sort of makes sense. But that also gets expensive quickly. And McDonald says that means the old ways of paying for infrastructure projects aren't enough.
1: You know, none of us enjoy paying for these public goods. What some other countries have done is charging people to actually use specific facilities. So more tolling of roads, more tolling of bridges. But those efforts have tended to be less common in the U.S. than some other countries. And I I think this bill is interesting because it's not necessarily promoting that sort of economist view of how you charge for infrastructure. They're looking at more broad-based revenue support for
0: it. And by broad-based revenue support, we mean raising corporate taxes and closing some other tax loopholes, something the White House wants to do, but Republicans don't. Cue political fighting, the future of this bill being on the line, and the White House sending out five cabinet members to talk to the media. Oh, hang on. Good morning, Thanks. can you hear us? We're getting a call from Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo we better take this, because we have some questions for her. The legislation you're here to talk about is called the American Jobs Plan. But a lot of news coverage calls this an infrastructure bill, which has led to criticism that, hey, less than half of what's in this bill is actually infrastructure. What's going on here?
3: Well, it's both. It is both a jobs bill, because when you invest in infrastructure, you create millions of jobs. And I think it's time that we think in a more modern way about infrastructure instead of the old fashioned way of just roads and bridges. And so if people kind of open their mind to 21st century definition of infrastructure, it is an infrastructure bill that will create, you know, tens of millions of jobs.
0: So what is that 21st century definition of infrastructure?
3: So it would include broadband investments It would include investments in systems that lead to better job training and apprenticeship so people can actually get a job when they're done training. It includes investments in the systems that allow care workers to make a decent livable wage and also roads, bridges, airports, water, the traditional stuff we think of.
0: Why should this kind of plan matter to young adults and millennial women in particular, and why now?
3: Actually, I think this benefits you guys and even younger people the most. Think about what's going to happen to your job prospects if we don't do this. That's pretty scary. Old people like me, we're pretty good, you know? Like, I've had a nice career. If we don't do this bill now, You guys and my kids are going to have a really rough go of it.
0: You mentioned younger generations suffering job-wise if we don't pass this bill. Can you connect the dots for me on why that is?
3: I'll give you one specific example that relates to my work as Commerce Secretary. A lot of the jobs that will be created in America in the next 10 years are going to be in tech fields, digital jobs, cloud computing jobs artificial intelligence, data analysis type jobs. None of that can happen if we don't make more semiconductors in America. And right now we're dangerously behind and the bill calls for $50 billion investment so we can build manufacturing plants in America to make more semiconductors. If we do that, we'll put a lot of people to work in manufacturing, making the chips and also Tons of jobs will be created in all those areas that I just described. Pretty much every job in America, I don't care really what you do, is going to be more tech enabled, more digital, more database. And so we really need to invest in chips that are the building blocks of all those other areas.
0: On that point, I think there's the trope of people are worried that computers are going to take their jobs. And that's especially true of people in manufacturing industries. How is this bill guaranteeing that those manufacturing jobs are sustainable and won't be overtaken by computers or, or automation?
3: So I think we need to be honest about this. There will be some jobs that go away because of automation and we shouldn't lie to people. However, there'll be a lot more jobs that are created. You know, For every one job that goes away, there'll be more than one job created. The challenge is making sure that people can get those new jobs. And a lot of that is job training and support to give folks a hand to have the skills they need to get those new jobs.
0: Why does this matter to conservatives and other Americans who are worried about government spending? Because
3: this is investment, and if we don't do it, we're screwed. I used to run a business. Every business has to invest. If you don't invest, if you don't invest in your people and job training and technology and infrastructure and capital equipment, you know, say in business, you don't compete. This is about making investments to compete. And so, listen, I am uh, fiscally aware as a business person myself but I just worry more about the consequences of not making these investments so we can compete.
0: Last week at the White House, you said this bill is large because on infrastructure, quote, we're behind. Who is the US behind on infrastructure and by how much? So
3: first of all, we're behind almost every other industrialized country. And don't take it from me, fly around the world in any airport, and then come to a lot of airports in America or train stations or roads and bridges or broadband. 30% of Americans living in rural communities don't have broadband. Like that's objectively a problem and behind. So we're behind every other advanced economy. We're also behind where we used to be. We used to invest twice as much in basic research in America as a percent of our GDP than we do now. So we've just
0: kind of taken our eye off the ball. You mentioned airports and flying around and being able to see the differences in infrastructure. I'm wondering, what are other ways that our audience can see the ways that U.S. infrastructure is falling behind?
3: Oh, my God, everywhere. I mean, I don't know where you guys live, but chances are you live in a place where there's cracks and potholes in your roads. You might not have nice bike lanes and green open space. You might not have broadband. You might have lead pipes that deliver water to your house, which is dangerous for little kids, especially. If you have an elderly loved one, go try to hire someone to take care of mom. And, you know, good luck because it's hard. And if you find someone, chances are, it'll be a woman who's going to work really hard and still be in poverty. It's everywhere, all around us.
0: On the point of the U.S. being behind other countries, have you faced any resistance when you've brought that fact up? I haven't really.
3: People generally acknowledge, folks will just look at those facts. I think it's pretty well accepted. The the where you find resistance is, how big should the package be? And how should we pay for it?
0: Speaking of paying for it, if the U.S. is now behind on infrastructure and needs to catch up, why not just say to people having better services, better roads, better airports costs more? So taxes and not just corporate taxes will need to go up. Are we tricking ourselves kind of by saying we can simultaneously have better services and not have individual Americans end up paying more?
3: No, I I mean, listen, we put forth a plan that does pay for all the infrastructure we call for and does not raise taxes on individual Americans, but it does raise taxes on big companies, many of whom paid zero taxes last year. That's just a fact. Many American companies that are massively profitable made more profits last year than any year in their company's history, paid zero taxes. By the way, I don't blame them. They were following the law. They hired really good tax attorneys to take advantage of all the loopholes. That's exactly what I would have done if I were them. So we got to fix the law. So that's not possible. So they pay their fair share.
0: What happens if the rate is lowered from the 28% that's proposed right now? What is the impact of compromising on the corporate tax rate?
3: You know, it obviously depends. It depends on how low it goes. There's plenty of room for compromise. I think we could definitely fund the package or most of it and compromise on the rate.
0: What are some other specifics from the bill that you would be willing to compromise on to get it passed?
3: You know, I, I think everything, truthfully, you, I, in a bill like this, you can't go like one item at a time. Everything's important. You know, The president thinks, we, the team, our team thinks we need every bit of this. If that can't happen, well, then, let, then tell us, you know, we're asking Congress to tell us what they think should happen. And then, you know, we, serious people can have a serious discussion and come up with something that's good for America.
0: Secretary, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Have a good day. Before we go today, let's take a minute to blow off some steam. That's right, we're ending the show with news about screaming. That's because scientists at the University of Zurich now say screaming is way more than just a sign of bad news or frustration. Scientists think humans actually scream to express at least six different emotions fear, pain, anger, sadness, pleasure, and joy. That's more of an I just got into college scream than an I forgot to pay my taxes scream. After watching how people's brains reacted while listening to different screams, the scientists found that hearing screams of fear or pain, for example, activated a different part of our brains than screams of joy or pleasure. They also found we react faster to positive screams rather than ones that signal distress or danger. That makes humans way more scream literate than other primates for whom screams just signal danger. And according to the scientists, that could show just how important understanding social context was during human evolution. And might explain why, when we hear this, we think, oh, who just got engaged? But when we hear this, we think, eh, maybe the lifeguard should go deal with that. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and by me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.